Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 13, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. I'm Rick Lawrence, author of The Jesus-Centered Life and editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, among other many and varied activities. And over here to my left is the Becky Nader. Hello. Becky is the author of her own life. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> it's a fascinating there's adventure other, story. There's other authors in my life. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a, like a spy thriller. <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay. It's not like The Notebook, though. Mm-mm. No, it's more... No, it's more Mission like Mission Impossible a, kind of like a regular television show about a regular life. That's what it would be like <laughs> if you were a secret agent. Fo- yeah, that's what it would be. Follow Becky home. It's really boring. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think your life is boring at all. And actually, I mean, we're joking here, but the truth is uh that that the one who is the artist in our life who's painting a, a work of art in our life he works in the medium of our narrative, our, our own story's narrative. So that's why I meet people all the time who, um, when I'm out speaking, who, uh, when I say something like, isn't your life full of these like disparate twists and turns and things that didn't make sense at the time and jobs that you had that you're like, why did I, why was that a six-month job? Uh, you know, just things that seem like little dead ends along the way. But then when you get down the road, like 10 or 15 years, and you realize, oh my gosh, what I'm doing today was made possible by all these little dead ends I had before. And the people I'm talking to and influencing today, I would not have been able to had I not had this experience that didn't make any sense. It almost makes you think that there's a fantastic artist working with the raw material of your life to paint something beautiful. One might think that there was a fantastic artist behind or this. or that you'll look back and go oh my gosh i'm so glad that such and such or such and such prevented me from going down that path because i never would have been able to experience or if i had i would have encountered some really bad things so you know sometimes those little like bumps and nudges they save you from your own mistakes or your own wrong path taken so um, you and have probably had the same experience I've had, where you, where somebody uh, kind of walks into the room, and some of the life in the room gets sucked out of the room immediately. I mean, there, there are, you know, you can jokingly call these people negative Nancys or Eeyores or whatever, but it's always, always about that person's narrative. What narrative are they living in? And when a person is it just draws the life out of a room. It's because the narrative they're stuck in is a narrative of captivity and hopelessness and cynicism, and they can't get out of that narrative. What I mean by that is um, you can read a story multiple ways, and sometimes people read their own story in a very um, deceptive way. They are deceived by aspects of their story, and they come to conclusions about their story that aren't true. And what they most need is a truthful narrative about their story. But it's hard to get a truthful narrative about our story because we're such broken people. 
And so that what we're going to explore today is um, one of the two uh, big questions in life that I've said in pretty much everything I've written for the last 15 years has in one way or another orbited around two big questions in life that I think can drive everything that we're about in our life, and also if you're involved in ministry in any way, I believe these two questions are the orbital center of any thriving ministry, and they're simply these two questions embedded in an encounter that Jesus had early on with his disciples. So he's early on gathering huge crowds, and they're trying to figure out who he is. Is he the Messiah? Is he just an incredible rabbi? What is? Who is this guy? And so he's just had one of these remarkable experiences with a large crowd, and he's debriefing the experience with his disciples afterwards, and he asks a fascinating question that reveals how secure he is as well. Jesus is the most secure person who ever walked the earth. And so he asks his disciples, who do all those people say that I am? And the disciples are like shifting their feet back and forth a little bit, oh, well, Jesus, because they know Jesus has already proclaimed who he is. So he's asking them, but who do they think I am? And they're like, well, uh, Elijah, come back from the dead, you know, Jeremiah, um, a prophet, uh, you know, yeah, that's who they think you are. A crazy nutcase. But they, they probably thought that too. And then Jesus, there's a, you can just imagine this kind of pregnant pause, and then Jesus looks at him and says, who do you say that I am? Now, this is a moment. Um, it's one thing to represent what everyone else is saying that's, that's off the mark, but who do you guys really think I am? Because he's had pretty good evidence so far that they haven't quite grasped who, that, that it's true what he's saying, the person that he is, the Messiah, it, that it's actually true. He's had some evidence that they, they haven't quite ingested that yet, so he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps into that awkward gap moment and says, he's the first to say this in a public way. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah that centuries of people have been waiting for. That's essentially what he's saying. You're it. And Jesus says back to him, you're blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Spirit revealed this to you. The truth about who I am is always revealed by the Spirit. And so the Spirit reveals this to Peter, and then, uh, but his name wasn't Peter yet, actually. Mm -hmm. It was Simon. And so Jesus... So the first question is, who do we say Jesus is? That is a central orbiting question. The next one follows immediately afterwards. Jesus says, well, you know what, Simon? Uh, that's not actually the name that the Trinity calls you. Your, your name is Peter. Mm -hmm. You're the rock, and we're going to build the church on you. He's naming, uh, giving Simon a name that encompasses great meaning in his life and, and also telegraphs his purpose and role in the kingdom. The, the ancient Jews were great at giving people names that imbued meaning on them. In fact, we've done this in our own family. We named our first daughter Lucy after Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia. And what's remarkable is that she has lived into that personality. She is like Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia. She's enjoyable. That. And we named our youngest daughter Emma after a character in a Jane Austen novel called Emma. She, she just sh struck us. It struck us to call her that when she was, uh, when she was born. And my wife would say, we called her Emma because I also liked the sound of it. <laughs> but, and Emma has lived into that in a, in a strange way, she's lived into that character's sort of uh, ethic and essence. 
So the Jews did a lot of this. They liked to name people and give them, uh, imbue meaning within that name. So Jesus imbues meaning and changes Simon's name to Peter. So the second question that everything revolves around is, who does Jesus say I am? So the two are, who do I say Jesus is, and who does Jesus say I am? And this kind of interplay between these two questions can make up the whole of our life as we pursue every day, who do I say Jesus is today? I'm exploring and pursuing his heart. And the other one is, how am I being defined by Jesus? Who does he say that I am? That second question is incredibly vulnerable. I mean, it's fraught with difficulty and challenge. And so uh, that's what we want to explore today, though, is who does Jesus say that you are? And, and what, what, what is his purpose in telling you who you are? So, Rick, there was this story that's floating around Facebook right now. Um, there was a college student, and I'm not going to remember the name of the college, but he was suspended uh, because he was in a class, I, I think it was a history class, and the professor was proclaiming with absolute authority that the crucifixion was a total hoax. And the student stood up and absolutely refused to have to have that um, be told and, and said with absolute certainty, you're wrong. He ended up being, I think the security came to um, the class and pulled him out and um, he was suspended. So of course this is, you know, roaming around, but I'm thinking of this college student right now. And I just remember, I, I read this last night and I was like, good for you. Um, but what he did is he, he's standing firm. I know who Jesus is. So I kind of think right now, I'm kind of thinking of this person in my head thinking, you're ready to be named now. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, um, because it's, it's not just about, did I go to church or have I read the Bible enough? We, we talk probably more than anything about our Jesus and our Bible. The reason why we made it is because we want you to answer that first question, because when you do with certainty and you're, and you stand in authority with it, like the way Peter did, the next thing that comes is so cool. And we want that for everybody. Yeah, and there this is the interplay between these two questions. So Jesus will not be out generous. So as we name him, he, it's not a formula, it's not a step-by-step linear process. He's simply trying to say it's it's uh, as you name me with truth, as you begin to see my heart for what it really is, as you begin to treat me as the distinct person that I am. I want you to come to understand yourself. Yeah. It's the end of that thing that we've called the progression before, when we get to know Jesus well, and we, the more we follow him, the more we love him, the more we love him, the more we become like him. The more we become like him, the more we become ourselves. The reason why is as we become embedded and abiding in the heart of Jesus, he generously reveals to us who we really are. He takes what I, what I would call the broken mirror, that's inside, and he puts it back together. He reflects back uh, to us the truth about who we are. And the the broken mirror thing, the, I think I have a, a whole chapter in there the is. Jesus-centered life <clears throat> called Funhouse Mirrors or something, and it's about how, you know, uh, we're born into sin, which means we're born with a broken mirror inside, the mirror that reflects back who we really are. So we're born with a, a, a broken mirror, and then it gets shattered over and over again as we live our life, mm-hmm. just keeps getting broken. Depending upon the level of dysfunction of the home you grew up in, it could be 
micro shattered. Yeah. Like it doesn't even function as a mirror anymore. Yeah. It's so shattered. And that what that means is that as as we have this internal conversation going on inside, we are constantly forced to deal with an untrue narrative, an untrue image or identity about who we are. It, it's hard to fight some of these underlying things that seem so true about ourselves, but are actually quite destructive. And we're also surrounded in a community of people who are also equally have shattered mirrors. Yep. It's not like they're trust completely trustworthy in reflecting back to us who we really are. So we're going to talk about our identity and how our broken identity gets put back together by Jesus. I think it's fascinating that um, Nicodemus, a well-known Pharisee, is is intrigued and kind of drawn to Jesus, but it's not politically correct for him to be pursuing Jesus. He might get in trouble, actually, if he's seen pursuing Jesus, so he pursues him at night, and uh, he's questioning him about who he is. And Jesus says a bizarre thing to him, well, Nicodemus, you're going to have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, uh, I don't know what to do with that. Do you mean I have to enter my mother's womb again? Jesus often said things that were metaphoric, and people didn't know what to do with them. Eat my body and drink my blood. What? Are you a cannibal? Or So Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't get it, and Jesus says, no, you've been born of the flesh. Now you need to be born of the Spirit. What he's really saying is, Nicodemus, you were born in the flesh with a shattered mirror. You need to be born over again with an identity that has been reconstituted by me. Um, you have to be born over again. And we always think of it in terms of an event. Are you born again? Like, what date were you born again? Jesus doesn't really indicate that here. It, the the born-againness is a renewal of your true identity, the identity you were created with. It's the putting back together of your shattered mirror. And he really is the only trustworthy mirror we have. He's it. Every other mirror is broken on some level, so there's some truth people communicate back to us, but we can't wholly give ourselves to that reflection. We can give ourselves to the reflection that Jesus gives us. One of the things that I think is also true is that when we have broken mirrors, um, the enemy loves to poke at those broken pieces. Oh my gosh, yes. And in fact, I, I was just thinking of an example that you, if you are married, this will relate to you. But have you ever had one of those fights with your spouse where it's almost like it's like the same argument you've had over and over again, <laughs> and you just keep going back around and around, and then all of a sudden, one person says like one thing, and it, it the reason why that one thing just turns the whole thing on edge is because it's it's picking up a piece of the broken mirror and being like, oh yeah, this is you. And trying to, mm. to poke that out at that. And, and actually, Steph and I, on They Say Podcast last week, did um, an episode on, on conflict in particular. And she had this great analogy about how she feels like there are some fights that are actually not between you and that other person. They're actually spiritual battles. Totally. And, and that, I think that sh we even talked about how if you want to know the difference, when you're in a fight with someone and they pick up a piece of your broken mirror... And they say, oh, yeah, well, this is because of and pointed at you. And in that that's like your hot button that turns you just into a crazy into the crazy person they're trying to point out. 
that's a good time to take a break and start having battle with the right with the right um, thing in the room, not the person, but the enemy. Yeah. And the enemy, he wants to he wants to keep your mirror shattered. He wants to keep it that way so that you never actually realize who you are in Christ and that you never are actually set free. Yeah, this is such an important thing to pay attention to right now. Everything rests on this because the enemy of God understands a deep truth and that is if if he can fuel your distorted identity and get you to live in your deceptive narrative then you will destroy yourself he is a, he's strategic and lazy that means he's choosing the best means possible with as little effort as possible on his part to work out his job description mm-hmm. which is to kill steal and destroy so every struggle we have in life you can track back to our identity in some way or another. And this, what you're describing here, I've felt this so many times, where you feel like there's something else going on in this conversation that is outside the boundaries of of where it could be, but a whole bunch of other stuff has been loaded into the conversation. And it comes from our brokenness and mm-hmm. our... And, and when I say brokenness, I'm, I don't even mean to diminish how deep <clears throat> that brokenness can go, shattered trust from abuse and other things in your life. It's, uh, you know, a child abuse of any kind is like Alzheimer's in the sense that it's an insidious and almost evil disease mm-hmm. because it robs you of your identity. And child abuse of any kind robs you of your true identity and makes it difficult the rest of your life to embrace the truth about who you are. You have barriers from that mm-hmm. moment forward because your mirror has been horribly shattered and reflected back to you that this is the kind of person you are. And we tend to embrace these narratives more deeply when we're children, and then we live them out as we grow into adults. So the enemy certainly wants to leverage our shattered identity. He wants as much as possible for us to just start spinning the plate of destruction in our life and then leave it alone. Yep, then he doesn't have to do anything else. That's right. We just self-destruct. And so it's important to recognize when you're getting your own stuff accessed or someone else is, and to do just what you said, pause. I do this all the time. I don't usually do it in the moment. I reflect back, wow, that got out of hand. Why? <laughs> um, totally. Why? Why did that get out of hand? Oh. Oh. And then I start to stand in authority mm-hmm. over the the evil one who is trying to leverage our broken identities and use them against us. So I start to take authority mm-hmm. over his influence over that conversation. So so we all have shattered mirrors. Everyone does. And uh, our shattered mirrors are telling us a narrative. So uh, Becky and I thought we would just share a little bit of our own story about how what narrative our own shattered mirrors have been trying to tell us our whole lives. So um, I'm a gentleman, so I'm going to let Becky go first. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, my my family has a history that probably goes back generations and generations. We have a lot of mental illness in our family, and there's just a lot of kind of downputting. Like we get together, and it's our favorite thing. Um, and and we do it in like that like kind of like loving like we're just we're just letting you know so that you know you can be a better person kind of way where we're you know we're bettering each other through basically put downs, and there there's this we we got into this real bad habit over many many years of this just being the way it was and 
you know, I've, I mentioned a few times that I've been reading A Failure of Nerve and realizing I don't like this pattern. Um, and the best way to to not be part of this pattern is to start pulling myself intentionally out of the dysfunction. And so when my family came to visit um, over the holidays, it started and I did two things. One, I intentionally pulled myself out of it and I pulled myself out of it by not participating. And also when someone said something that I felt like was negative, I would, I would confront that. And then I would also tell the truth about that person in a positive way. So I kept doing this and it was really working. It was actually changing the dynamic of the entire week, but there was one person who was just not getting it. And I finally pulled them aside and I I literally confronted it completely and said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't want it in my house anymore. And I don't want it to be what our family is about. Um, and, And we're not perfect. Like we're still struggling with it. This is like decades of ingrained behavior, probably generations before um, ingrained this behavior in in the people who raised us. But it, it has been such a special thing to, to kind of take a stand and say, we're the next generation and we're not going to do this. We're going to, we're going to pull together and really highlight the positive things. And we're going to, we're going to name each other for who, who we are. We're going to celebrate our differences and we're going to celebrate what makes us unique and how God made us. And I, I, that particularly for me has been a huge deal um, and just being able to enjoy myself and also for myself to stand against all of those negative things that have been said to me over the years by people who I know love me and to, to say no to those things and say, that's actually not who I am. And for me to even say, hey, um, you said this, that's not true. That's not who I am. And for me to do that is 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 claiming myself and um, it's putting myself and my mirror back together again. Mm-hmm. That's good. You know, I was thinking as you were you were saying this, I, I was just this popped into my head. This Old Testament um, statement that feels like an anvil over our heads. The sins of the fathers are visited upon each generation afterwards. Mm-hmm. What that's really saying is, uh, it 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 fits with your story and with mine. That it's not just my brokenness right now from the point when I was uh, born and growing up in my home, but our families have a history of a certain kind of brokenness. And that's what that Old Testament statement is really saying, is the brokenness of the fathers is passed down. You could say it's passed down genetically, but it's also just sort of passed down in a psychological, emotional sense, in a spiritual sense, that that brokenness is like a river running through the family. And what's also true about that Old Testament statement, though, is that the blessings of the fathers also run generationally. So what you're talking about, and what my wife and I talk about all the time, Mm -hmm. is stopping the flow of the river, of the river of brokenness that that was passed forward to us, stopping it as much as possible here, so that what we hand to our kids is less of the flow of that brokenness. And they, in turn, can turn that into, eventually, that turns into passed-down blessing. That's beautiful. Instead of a passed-down broken. So how does this happen? um, You know, I can—I'll tell you some foundational stuff about my own story. So I was raised in a home where, in retrospect, when I look back on my childhood, I realize that I was incredibly invisible 
in my home. Now, I, I want to, uh, you know, kind of walk tenderly here around the dynamic in my family. But my my parents, uh, I would say, leaned toward narcissism. And what I learned as, growing into an adult is that when you grow up in a narcissistic home, or one that leans toward that, um, that your identity can get lost because the, the people that are the primary mirrors in your life are always pointing that mirror back toward themselves. They're not really reflecting you in the truth about who you are. And when, when you look at your parents and you see no mirror there, you come to believe as a kid that there's no there there in you. Like, I thought I had an emptiness inside where there was supposed to be something solid, and I didn't realize that I had come to embrace that narrative about myself so deeply Mm -hmm. until I started to become an adult. And on the outside, I was very successful. I had lots of friends who enjoyed me, but when I began to be in a more uh, intimate relationship with Bev, who would one day become my wife, so... You know, you you get to know each other better. You start to tap at stuff that's below the surface, and and she was she was tapping at stuff below the surface, and I wouldn't have admitted it at the time, but I tried to protect the idea that that there was nothing inside here. I would not let people get too close to that because if they did, they might discover what I already yeah. knew, which is there's a nothing there where there's supposed to be a something, and so. That's not really a good equation if you're going to marry somebody, especially somebody who's honest and is actually paying attention. And so in our early marriage, she would tap into stuff, and I would have a really strong reaction because inside I was trying to protect that place from being accessed. So I was a poser in in the sense that I was hiding from these pursuits, and we would have arguments and fights that were getting worse and worse, not physically, but... They were, they were, I would say they were more dangerous interactions because we were saying things that were really deeply hurting each other. And then we would recover, and we would tell ourselves it was going to be okay, but it was just getting a little bit worse every time we had one. And I had one of these hard conversations with, with her right before I was supposed to leave to go speak at a conference one, one time, and literally we were in the middle of it, and my ride rang the doorbell, and I had to leave right in the middle of this. And as I walked out, I thought, this is the last thing I want to do. I can't go to this conference. I can't leave this behind without resolution. But I didn't have a choice. I had to go. And But I had this sinking feeling that there was something about this conflict that was way worse than all the others. So I got to the conference location. It was back in the day when there were no cell phones. So I picked up the phone as soon as I got to the hotel, and I, call, I called her, and she hung up. I called her again. She hung up. I called her a third time. She hung up. We're I fickle. thought, I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> I, I had this feeling that maybe we had crossed a line that I couldn't recover from, and it was the worst. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to be gone for three days. I can't see her. I can't do anything about this. She won't talk to me. I'm alone. So you can see it's accessing all this stuff in me. Now it's being brought to the she's surface. She's finally figured it out. Right. And, she's, and she hasn't figured out why. She just knows there's something wrong down in there. There's something not right that 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 is not been surfaced mm-hmm. into the light. And she was right. It was it was in the dark. And so uh what my strategy was during the 3 days I was at the conference. My my face is on all the brochures and stuff and I I mean it's the worst thing. You, you don't want to talk to anyone and yet everyone there knows you. 
So I my strategy was to kind of uh, hug the wall of every hallway I had to walk down so that people would not even see me. And it was one of these times when I was hugging the wall and I passed by an open room to a, a little workshop room and it was dark in there. And it just felt Jesus saying, come, come into this room and close the door. So I did. I had a, like a legal pad with me and a Bible and some other stuff. And I just sat cross-legged on the floor and I said, what do you want, Jesus? But at this point, I was exhausted because of the internal fight and mm-hmm. didn't know where all this was going to happen. And essentially what Jesus said was, um, I just want you to listen and write down what I say, because I, I need to tell you something. So I said, okay. And I literally put the legal pad on my lap with a pen, and I said, okay, I'll be like a transcriptionist. I'll just write whatever you say. It was one of those moments where I felt incredible clarity and attention and acuity in the moment. I did not know what he was going to say to me. What I hoped he was going to say is, very simple, Rick, it's going to be okay. You're going to get home. You're going to work this out. It'll all be okay. You Mm -hmm. can go on in in the dream that you had for your marriage. You'll be able to go on with this, and it'll all be okay. Don't worry. That's what I so desperately wanted him to say. Instead, here's what he said. Now, I have to preface this. I I did write this down verbatim, and so I scribbled it as I felt like I heard it, and then I went back and read it. And uh, just so you understand a little bit, Jesus loves metaphors, and he spoke to me metaphorically. And my, I had uh, my whole life, up until I was uh, in college, I, I wanted to be a quarterback. I played quarterback in, in peewee football and in middle school and in high school, and um, I, I loved playing quarterback. I just wasn't athletic enough to be that good at it. <laughs> so it, it, the, the idea of being a quarterback was deep in my soul. So here's what Jesus said to me. You're a quarterback. You see the field. You're swarming away from the rush to find space to release the ball. You never give up. You have courage in the face of ferocity. In fact, ferocity draws out your courage. You want to score even when the team is too far behind for it to matter. You love the thrill of creating a play in the huddle under pressure and spreading the ball around everyone on the team. You have no greater feeling than throwing the ball hard to a spot and watching the receiver get to it without breaking stride. In fact, you love it most when the receiver is closely covered and it takes a perfect throw to get it to him. You have the same feeling when you throw a bomb and watch the receiver run under it, or when you tear away from the grasp of a defender, or when you see and feel blood on your elbows or knees and feel alive because of it. You love to score right after the other team has scored, but you want to do it methodically, first down by first down, right down the field. You love fourth down. You want to win, but you're satisfied by fighting well. I wrote down this story in both the Jesus-Centered Life and Jesus-Centered Youth Ministry because it was such a pivotal moment for me. So keep in mind, what I wanted him to say was, it's going to be okay, Rick. Instead, what he did was name me. He described my heart at a time when I thought there was no description to be had for my heart because there's nothing there. What he said in saying this was, there is a there there, Rick, and this is what it looks like. After I had this experience, and I just I descended into tears um, because there was so much truth about this that it wasn't a matter of trying to accept it. I just knew what he had said was true. But I went home. My wife said, we need to separate. I lived apart from her for three months. 
I lived with friends who worked here at group. I lived in their basements. Uh, I lived with two different people during that time. It was the lead up to Christmas, so it made it even worse. We had no kids at that time, so I just felt so alone and so afraid of what might happen. But I had this experience of Jesus naming me on the hotel room floor, telling me who I, who I was. That is the thing that carried me through all of the agonizing nights of those three months apart. And when we came back together, I, I wouldn't say I was a different person, but I was accountable to a different truth. I knew the truth was there was a there there at the core of who I am, and that Jesus had described that core well, and now I was accountable for living out the truth about what he said about me. So we went, we were in counseling this whole time, and, and when we got, when I finally moved back, we can, continued in that, in that counseling, and we had a great counselor who helped me to begin to embrace the truth about who I was, and therefore I could with all of the courage I had and all of the fearlessness and risk that I had that was channeled into protecting the nothing in me, now it could be channeled into living out what was true about me. So I had the experience of the two questions and their interplay, uh, who do I say Jesus is, and then Jesus saying, well, here's who you are. I had a profound sort of lightning bolt experience that everything in my adult life has pivoted around. And from that moment to this moment, feeling like I'm, I'm living out the truth about what he said about me. So um, this reclamation of our true identity is, is, is uh, a major emphasis with uh, Jesus' influence in our lives. He wants to put back our true identity. He wants us to see our true reflection in him, and he wants to repair the shattered mirror that was shattered by our own sin inside. One of the things I love is that whenever I have moments like that where I am literally like middle of the night crying into the carpet, worst case scenario situation happening, I love that every time that happens, he doesn't come in and fix it. He comes in and he tells me something about myself or he tells me, something that, that I needed to hear about the situation. And he's just so gentle and kind. And he's such a, he's such a cheerleader. He is such a cheerleader for me. And I think it's because he knows how broken my mirrors are. And so he knows that the only way that I'm going to have the strength and courage to free myself from it is if he comes in and takes a piece and puts it back together and shows me a bigger and more clear version of who I am so that I can have the confidence that comes only from him to say, okay, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do what I need to do. And I just, I love, I love that Jesus just wants to reclaim us because he wants to set us free. And it's not just crucial for you, which it is, Mm -hmm. but it's also crucial for the wider body of Christ. Mm -hmm. We are his living body on earth, and there are many, many things that are in need of the love and redemption and mercy of Jesus around us. There are broken people all around us, and in order for us to reach them and bring light and comfort and redemption, we have to be freed captives. We, we have to be able to walk into those places and bring His truth. So it, it's important for us to be restored 
in this way, but also we are desperately needed in the circles that we are in contact with. We are desperately needed in those places. I always tell people, there are people in dark caves that only you can walk into, given your unique story and narrative. The fact that you're a unique work of art means that you fit in some dark corners where no one else will fit, and there's somebody there who needs what you have. And unless you're freed up to be able to go to them, you're not caught up in your own destructive cycle, that person's going to be unreached. And this is Jesus's perspective. I have hurting people that you you can impact because of the unique narrative you have in your life, and I need you to be free so that you can you can reach those people. So it has two things, individual and collective, that we get back our, our restored identity. If you now transition into thinking about, so did Jesus do this when he met people in the in the pages of Scripture? Did how how did people begin to reclaim their true identity as Jesus interacted with them? There are so many examples of Jesus slyly, subtly, mm-hmm. and sometimes big and profoundly doing this in people's lives. Like one that comes easily to mind is Saul, who was a murderous enemy of the early church, whose mission and passion was to use his great intellect and his incredible shrewdness to find and prosecute and kill early Christians. That that was his passion. And so he, here's a guy who's locked in a destructive narrative about his life. He can't get out of it, and he's harming and hurting so many people. And on his way to Damascus, sitting on the back of a donkey, Jesus himself knocks him off the donkey and says, why are you persecuting me? In a not-so-subtle way. (laughs) He's like, hey, you're you're not just hurting the people that you're hurting, but you're hurting me. Why are you persecuting me? He blinds him and then gives him some time to think. (laughs) In the midst of his pain and uncertainty, he accesses... So this is... Think about me sitting there on the carpet in that hotel conference room. I was in absolute pain, and I was more open than I'd ever been to simply hearing Jesus. And here's Paul, hammered, blinded. What's going to happen to me now? He is in the depth of his own pain, and he's open. This little door cracks open in him so that Jesus can invite him. And what he does is say, say, hey, Paul, quit your team and join mine. The good news is that this is not the the way that Jesus deals with us most of the time. <laughs> yeah. If you're now terrified, he's going to upend your life this way. This was this was actually, if you look at all the examples, was not exactly the most normal. Yeah, there, there's no Jesus. He had a specific goal. Jesus, yeah, Jesus doesn't follow formulas with people. He he delivers the kind of love that's necessary for that person, and this was necessary for Saul, who becomes Paul, and all that shrewdness and intellect now is is married to the kingdom of God, and and we have most of the New Testament because of it. So this is a powerful re- reorientation of Paul, changing his, uh, ch- changing his narrative from one thing to another. Paul embraces this new narrative and his new name. He lives into his new name. So, uh, so we have another one with, uh, that we just mentioned at the start, Simon into Peter— Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And 
So what does Jesus see in Simon's narrative? He sees a, a business owner when everyone around him is slaves. Um, he sees a guy of initiative and action, and he, he gets things done. He builds things. He built a business. And he plucks Peter out of his world, an uneducated fisherman, but who knew how to build things. And he says, Simon, your real name is Peter, and the thing you're going to build in the future is a lot bigger than a little fishing business. You're going to be the uh, foundation of the church. And I put a builder at the very beginning here to start laying the, the rocks for the foundation of the church, and this is Peter's true identity. Of course he struggles with that true identity. He betrays Jesus three times. We do too. It's not like everything was solved for me on that hotel room, uh, conference room floor. All, it, all I know now is that I'm accountable to that identity. And Peter it was accountable to the identity Jesus spoke out about him, and eventually he lives into it. He lives into that identity. We have the, uh, the woman also who touches the hem of Jesus' garment. We were talking about That's this before. My, this is one of my favorites, and we, we've covered this like this story in very like detail on another podcast, and we'll share it on the description for this page, because it's a good one if you, if you need to go back and you haven't listened to it. But she comes for healing, and she doesn't want to like bother Jesus, maybe, or maybe she's just embarrassed. So she knows, she knows with certainty, if I just touch his cloak, I will have healing. So she does, and she gets healing, and then she tries to kind of sneak away. And he goes back and, and it's almost like, why would he have done this? This, you know, she's in this shameful position and he calls her out and it's because he needed to tell her that she, she was, she was clean. He needed to declare it in front of all those people because her identity was wrapped up in what she, um, which in, in her sickness, and we have a lot of things like this, I need to be healed of insecurity. Well, what he wants to do is he, he doesn't want to just, he doesn't want to heal you of insecurity. He wants to tell you that you don't have to be insecure because you're his daughter and he gave you specific gifts. That's what he wants to tell you. So we, we as human beings always want to go to Jesus to fix the problem that we think is the problem, and he wants to come back, and he wants to name us in this beautiful way, and that story is such a great example that's of good. that. And you know, the, the thing that's happening there, too, is that she's she was hiding something, and she kind of snuck up to him, hoping to get power from him for healing, and then she wanted to sneak away again. What he didn't like was the hiding. He wants every—the reason why—catch this, what why Jesus loves us so deeply, he cannot get at stuff— that we keep in the dark. He can only get at stuff that, w- that is surfaced into the light, so he will use whatever leverage he can to help get out of the darkness into the light where it can be worked with. The reason why is when it stays in the darkness, we're not admitting it. We're, we're ignoring it. We're saying, it's there, but I'm not going to deal with it, just like I did. When it's in the light, then we partner with him to find release from captivity in that thing. He wants to do this with us, so therefore, it needs to be in the light. And by the way, join us next week, because we actually have Sarah Bessie. You might have um, heard us mention we were trying to get her on the show. She yeah, said we asked yes. you. we asked you to help by praying she that Sarah Bessie would yes. come on. Look! So she's going to come on next week, and we're going to talk specifically with her about um, leverage and freedom and the enemy and drinking booze. 
So it's going to be really fun. You should come next. In that specific order. (laughs) Do you know what we want to do now to to close off this show is um, we want to do something we we haven't really done much of. We're going to ask you to to do something as you're as you're listening here. In just a minute, I'm going to we're going to pause for about 30, 45 seconds, and it's just going to be silent. We'll come back on after this time of silence. But if you're listening to this right now and you're in a position to just be quiet, you're not around people right now when you're listening to this, either in your car or elsewhere, if you're able to close your eyes, this is not for you drivers right now, if you're able to close your eyes during this time, that would be great. But we want you to pause with us, and I'm going to pray as a lead-in, and we're just going to ask something I do all the time with adults and teenagers, to pause and ask Jesus, uh, what name do you have for me, Jesus? What, what word of description do you have for me? What do you have to say about who I really am? And we, we pause and we just wait for him to answer. And, and what we'll do here is, as you are waiting in silence, if you'll do this with us, I'm asking you to, to take whatever comes. It could be a, a word or a picture of something. It could be a scripture passage. It could be a whole paragraph like I got, kind of gushed out of a fire hose. It could be anything. But I'm asking you to simply receive it instead of resist it or make excuses for it or, or anything. Just receive it like a, a ball coming into a catcher's mitt. Just receive it. Now, the, w- the way that you can be relaxed about receiving it is we're going to pray at the start here and take authority over your own voice and over the voice of the enemy, and we're going to to set an environment where the only voice that you hear is Jesus. And of course, Jesus is never going to speak words of shame to you. So if, for some reason, in this silent time, a phrase or a word of shame comes up, that is simply the enemy trying to wheedle his way in, and that needs to be stood against. You need to take authority and say, well, you shut up. Uh, because he has to obey what you say. We've been given this authority by Jesus. So so let's enter into this time. If you're in a uh, place where you're alone and listening to this, I just invite you to spend 30, 45 seconds here in silence. I'll lead in, and then we'll come back on. So Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to do this. Um, we love you, and we trust you. So uh, we want to ask a big question right now. Um, Who do you say that we are? Who do you say I am right now, Jesus? Either a word, a phrase, a new name, whatever it is you want to give. And we take authority over our own voice, and we silence it right now. And we take authority over the voice of your enemy, and enemy of God, you, you may not speak. You must be silent right now. Jesus, we only want to hear your voice. We'll be quiet and listen to what you have to say. If you need more time and want to return to this, you can either stop the podcast right now and keep going, or you can revisit this. We're with you. Um, we, we want 
to participate with you in and with Jesus in setting captives free. We we want to see freedom so that the kingdom of God is advanced in the world. And oh my gosh, the world needs the kingdom of God. So thank you for doing that. So speaking of being with us, we started this new thing that we have not named, but it's like this exclusive group for people who listen to this podcast regularly. And we're going to like, we're going to include you first on things. We're going to send you stuff uh, randomly. We're going to pick your brains. We're going to talk to you. We're going to pray for you. Um, And so someone, one of you, some, several of you have already signed up, had suggested um, Peter Stones or Peter's Rocks. Um, as a name for this group, um, we thought, hey, this is fun. This is supposed to be interactive. So why don't we put it out to you guys? So if you're listening right now and you have an idea for a name, you can go on Jesus Jesus Centered Facebook page and message. It'll be me. You'll think you're messaging someone else, but it's me. I will answer you and just send us your ideas. Be sure to sign up on this page. And we're going to we're going to be creating another page for this um, to sign up. Um, you just give us your email address, and then we'll just start talking to you. Yeah, and again, this is a name for a, the community of people that are connected to this podcast and want to kind of close the loop of a relationship. So what 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 could we call it? And it's interesting, just today, uh, we have like the first copy of a new thing that we're releasing called Namesake. Maybe, Becky, you just want to tell them a little bit about that, too. Yeah, so it's coming out right now. So it's called Namesake. It's a coloring book. And the subtitle is Revealing Who Jesus Says I Am. Our friend Steph, who we've had on the podcast before, she wrote the devotions for this. So She's brilliant. She is. So she took a passage of scripture and she just did the same thing that we do all the time. She took a filter to it and said, what does this t- tell me about who Jesus says that we are? And then she wrote that devotion with it. And so while you're coloring the page next to it, you can be kind of you know thinking about, wow, what does this mean if this is true about me? Um, so if you're somebody who... A, maybe you're stressed out and you need a relief. Psychologists say that coloring is the way to go. And also, if you're just creative and you think that coloring is fun, pick up Namesake. It's just coming out. It's beautiful. All right. To close off today, um, last night I was leading our small group in our home, and and uh, I just heard at the end, after we finished, I heard some of the teenagers were talking on the couch, and we had just gone through a portion of Scripture where... Um, one of the stories was from the Gospel of John, and I think it was my daughter who actually said this, or it might have been somebody else, but they were joking about how John referred to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. They just thought it was the craziest thing, and kind of even narcissistic, that John, who was writing this Gospel, didn't reference himself by saying me. He, he called himself the disciple Jesus loved, and I remember thinking... I absolutely love that John did this, because he's he's defining himself as one loved by Jesus. This is a man free. Mm-hmm. It's, he's not being a narcissist or self-centered. He's saying, my identity has been formed by the knowledge that Jesus loves me, so much so that I won't even call call myself by my own name. I'm just the disciple Jesus loved. So um, our prayer is that you more and more can embrace the the same truth that John did, that you are the disciple Jesus loved. We'll see you next week.